This MPI webinar, Humanitarian Protection in an Era of Pandemic, was moderated by Megan Benton, Director of Research for MPI's International Program and MPI Europe. I hope that you and your families are doing well in this tough time. Thank you so much for joining us this morning or afternoon. I know that many of you have complicated schedules these days. Um, I'm just going to start with a housekeeping note. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or you can call 202-266-1929. We're going to have a Q&A at the end of the call. Um, there won't be a voice Q&A, so please type any questions you have into the Q&A chat box that's on the right of your screen. Um, and you can also click send to host, um, or you can email questions to events at migrationpolicy.org. You can also tweet us um, at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Uh, finally, audio and video from today's webinar will be available later today at migrationpolicy.org forward slash events. If we have any technical issues, just bear with us. Uh, we have the option of reconnecting through our phones rather than our Wi-Fi connections. We're not yet sure how much our neighbors will be using Netflix. Um, but uh, thank you so much for, for your patience um, with, with these issues. Um, I'm really pleased today to be joined by four great speakers. Um, we have Kathleen Newland, who of course is the co-founder of MPI and a senior fellow. Uh, Kathleen also recently returned from Bangladesh, uh, where she saw firsthand the conditions in the Rohingya camps. And she'll talk a little bit today about why COVID is such a concern there and, and some of the risk factors. We have Hannah Behrens, who is the director of MPI Europe. She's the author of a recent report, uh, Chasing Efficiency, can operational changes fix European asylum systems, which I'd uh, recommend to you if you haven't yet seen it. Um, Susan Fratsky is a policy analyst in the International Programme and NPI's top expert on resettlement and community sponsorship. And then we have Sarah Pierce, a policy analyst in the US Programme. Uh, she's NPI's resident social media queen and she's also a real expert on the nuts and bolts of the US asylum system and what's happening um, on the US southern border. So we're talking today about the direct threat that COVID poses to refugees worldwide, but we're also going to talk about the way that the pandemic is remodeling asylum, refugee resettlement and protection systems, and what the lasting impact could be when this is all over. And to structure our discussion, I think it's helpful to, to see this threat um, in three different strands or levels. The first, of course, is the direct threat to the health, well-being, livelihoods of refugees, Densely populated reception centers or camps can be a perfect storm for the spread of the virus. Overcrowding, of course, makes it near impossible to maintain social distancing. Limited access to water or soap rules out frequent hand washing. Then you have the issue of extremely scarce, scarce health resources, particularly the specialist intensive care that we know we need for COVID. This is very troubling in the case of a population that's already malnourished and may have existing health conditions. And then there are also related effects on livelihoods, on mental health for people who are already experiencing trauma to see fences erected, even if it is for their own protection, the risk of exploitation of children under social distancing conditions, and of course, the uh, stigmatization and xenophobia. The second order challenge is the threat that we face to the institutions of asylum and protection. So social distancing measures have meant that many asylum adjudication and processing systems are all but shut down. There's a halt in refugee resettlement. Humanitarian organizations are grounded and their workforce that is deploy deployed is having to take extreme precautions and really re rethink everything they do. 
basically many of these systems are in a period of state, but you can't simply press the pause button on systems that were already buckling and then expect them to emerge unscathed. Large backlogs could be further destabilizing together with the stop on returns, these could undermine the goal or legitimacy of asylum systems to grant swift protection to those who need it while preventing misuse. And then the third bucket is perhaps the one that is most concerning, it's also the most ambiguous. This is the potential threat that COVID poses to the norms of protection themselves. We've seen countries rail back from the principle of non-reformal, pushing asylum seekers back regardless of the fear that they face to their lives and safety. We're seeing populist politicians weaponizing the virus and suggesting that asylum seekers are more susceptible. We're seeing tensions brewing as people prepare for a fierce battle over scarce resources. Policies and practices in periods of emergency very easily become sticky, especially in this context. And I think that public trust is more vital, yet more elusive than ever. So these are bleak times and bleak questions. Um, we're really lucky to have four of my smartest colleagues with us from across MPI um, who all work on these issues from a slightly different angle. So I'm really thrilled to have you all uh, to discuss what's happening now, but what a potential exit strategy could look like. Just also to mention, we're trying something a little bit different with today's webinar, um, no opening presentations. Instead, we're structuring our discussion along the, the three themes that I outlined above. So the first is the current situation and the immediate threat to the health of asylum seekers and refugees. Kathleen, if we could start with you. Uh, you've recently come back from Bangladesh. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the conditions there and perhaps in other countries of first asylum and, and why this is so worrying. Thank you, Megan, and greetings to all our participants. Uh, you're right, I visited the world's largest refugee camp in the Qatar's Bazaar district of Bangladesh. Uh, at the end of February, just as the spread of COVID-19 outside of China was beginning to be of concern, there are over 850,000 Rohingya refugees from Myanmar living in a string of camps, which are um, incredibly dense uh, and in a very uh, difficult area, both in terms of topography and climate. The government of Myanmar, the international agencies, the local humanitarian agencies, and above all, the refugees themselves have done an incredible job of making this very difficult terrain livable, but there are huge problems um, that make the camp incredibly vulnerable to the virus. And I, I want to mention um, just uh, uh, three or four of them quickly. Above all, there's the sheer density of the camp. And I, I wanted to show you a photo that I, I took uh, when I was there, just to give you an impression of the extent to which people are almost literally living on top of each other. Uh, the camps are three times as dense as New York City and without a single high-rise building. Uh, so, you know, people are living in these um, mostly sort of bamboo and tarp uh, uh, wellings, uh, which are extremely vulnerable to the sort of high winds, uh, particularly as the monsoon season and the uh, typhoon season are approaching this whole area of floods uh, and conditions become very um, unsanitary. Uh, thanks, Lisa, for putting up that uh, picture. Um, 
another problem is that the, these, uh, the people in this camp are completely dependent on external assistance. There's no possibility of self-sufficiency. The government of Bangladesh is extremely insistent that these are temporary um, residents and that they will be going home. So they've refused to have any um, uh, long-term self-sufficiency uh, experts so the um, uh, activities. So the supply chain is absolutely critical, literally, to keeping people alive. One of the biggest problems, I think, for this particular settlement is lack of communication. Um, the government of Bangladesh uh, forbids refugees from having SIM cards, uh, mobile phones. They've cut off the uh, internet and networks. Many, much of the population is illiterate. So really, the only way for information about the virus and protective measures and so on is face-to-face -face or through the radio. And there are about 75,000 radios have been distributed, but still listening to those radio broadcasts requires people to gather. And finally, um, the, the, well, fi yeah, finally, the, the services in the camps are stretched so thin in the best of times. There are only about 300 hospital beds there isn't a single ventilator in the entire district for the local population or the refugees, or at least there wasn't at the time that I was there and more recently. So if the virus were to start to spread, um, the mortality rate would most likely be very high. This is a population that's not in good health, they're traumatized and um, are extremely vulnerable. Just Added to that recently, of course, the restrictions on the movement of humanitarian workers, not only into and out of the country, but within the country, um, has been quite draconian. Um, international aid workers weren't permitted to spend the night in the camps at the best of times. And although the, the mega camp is only 12 kilometers from Cox's Bazaar town, um, on when I went in, it took two hours to cover that 12 kilometers. So the, the supplying of this huge camp is a real challenge, particularly as constraints on the movement of humanitarian workers and supplies grows. Thanks. That's Thank the starters. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kathleen. Um, perhaps we can turn to, to Hannah next. Um, Hannah, what's the situation like in Europe and reception centers in Europe? Has COVID already taken hold and are some of the concerns similar or are they quite different? Thanks, Megan. Yes, um, well, Europe, um, this has happened um, after the, the 2015 and 2016 crisis where many countries actually took the lesson to heart that we need to engage in contingency planning if we're able to deal with these kind of situations. but this again caught us really quite unprepared. So the general reaction of policymakers across Europe has been to really push the pause button. And so this means two things for two, type, two groups of, of, of people. On the one hand, if you look at the people that have already entered the system, so who've actually been able to uh, register their asylum claim, most of those received the message that their asylum claim is actually paused or suspended. There's no interviews taking place. There's only the odd country like, for example, uh, Sweden, who has decided to continue asylum processing, but all the others have decided to just stop it. 
Um, and then if we look at, at reception, those who are in reception facilities, uh, many of the kind of group activities have been dropped because there's a concern about spread, spreading the disease. And what you see is that um, these type of venues, many countries in Europe have chosen for collective reception facilities at the beginning of the asylum procedure. And these are the types of venues that don't really allow you to install social distancing, to separate groups or, or family units. Um, and so this is very difficult. Um, and that doesn't even get us to the situation in Greece uh, and the islands where the situation in, under normal circumstances was already overcrowded and with very dire sanitary conditions. And, and the picture uh, that Kathleen showed us could be easily also seen as very similar as what's happening there. But then for those who are trying to now access um, asylum, there again, we have problems because uh, people cannot enter because of the border closures. If they can, um, they may not be able to register their, their asylum claims. So a number of countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, decided to, to stop registration. But um, without registration, you, you're often bound to sleep rough. You don't have any access to the rights um, that are given to you uh, through asylum uh, law in Europe. And so that's also very problematic. Um, and that's so, although we have uh, a body of law in, in Europe that really outlines what we should be doing, uh, we have very different responses. And it shows that we're still able or can make very decision, different decisions in these kind of situations. That's very uh, problematic. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Um, turning now to Sarah for a different geographical focus. Could you tell us a bit about what's happening on the US-Mexico border and what the conditions are there? Sure. So, so even before this crisis, the Trump administration was actually contributing to a, a, a group of, of migrants at the southern border, increasing their population there. Since February 2017, the administration has been making asylum seekers wait at the northern border of Mexico before applying, and then eventually they instilled remain in Mexico, which makes migrants wait at that northern border of Mexico while their applications are pending in the United States. And now that they've entirely closed the border to asylum seekers, um, they're just being expelled back to Mexico, at the very least Mexican nationals and Central American nationals are. So we know before this crisis started that more than 46,000 migrants were waiting at the northern border of Mexico. We suspect that those numbers are significantly higher now. And these populations um, were already uh, living in very insecure conditions. They were at risk for extortion, kidnapping, rape from cartels. Um, and then their quality of life is such that it makes them very vulnerable to viruses. So they um, have poor health access, communal food, communal housing. Um, many live in outdoor camps. Many live in shelters, but those shelters are, are very poor. We've heard a lot of reports of standing water in some of the shelters, no soap in the bathrooms, um, things like this that really create a recipe for outbreak. And we've seen outbreaks uh, among these communities. They dealt with infectious diarrhea and the flu. Um, so, you know, we highly suspect that COVID is going to hit these communities, and when it does, it will hit them very hard. Another big problem is many of these border towns already have limited capacity to deal with this virus. Um, they don't have enough hospital beds and certainly not enough ventilators. 
And that problem is made even worse for the migrants because of the, the stigma involved with their um, living there. Many of them have been denied care at the local hospitals. Um, so it's, it's a really problematic situation. And um, many of these migrants are also dependent on American volunteers who come in and bring services, including health um, and, and food, et cetera. But those volunteers are now also their biggest threat because that would be the, the easiest way for the virus to, to get into these camps. So it's a very, um, a very insecure situation and, and it doesn't look to be getting better anytime soon. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Susan, we've been talking about the situation in particular displacement situations. Um, but what's happening with the resettlement system more broadly and for refugees who are waiting resettlement? Sure. So, um, of course, there's you know, all of these really significant um, impacts for refugees who are um, either waiting for, for access to asylum systems in the U.S. or Europe, but also um, in first asylum countries. But uh, we've also, uh, in addition to the, the shutdown of processing in many of those situations, um, we've also actually seen a, a close down of the refugee resettlement pipeline. Um, about two weeks ago, UNHCR and the International Organization for Migration announced that they would be halting resettlement departures um, for a few different reasons. Uh, first of all, of course, all of the travel bans and border closures have made it difficult to actually move people from one place to another. Um, but in addition to that, things like social distancing uh, make it difficult to actually uh, conduct some of the, um, the interviews, like for visas or for resettlement processing um, that are actually necessary to uh, get people a resettlement place. Um, and finally, of course, um, there's the risk of travel itself um, in, a, in a time when we're actually telling most people that it's, it's not necessarily safe to be boarding an international flight um, and in that confined space for a long time. Um, it's, of course, just as dangerous for uh, a refugee who's in the process of settling from one country to another to board that same flight. Um, so for all of those reasons, you know, CR and IOM, um, had a halt on settlement departures. Um, what that means for the refugees who are actually um, awaiting that spot is, uh, is a bit um, complicated. Uh, first of all, I think we need to remember that um, refugees who are actually selected for resettlement are often among the, the most vulnerable, particularly those who have been resettled for UNHCR, and in some cases, um, this means that uh, they may have medical conditions that could put them uh, more at risk for a, a COVID infection or for serious complications from a COVID infection, um, which of course means that you, you want to be careful, again, with those people um, traveling from one place to another, but also um, if the halt and resettlement means that they're then stuck in a uh, first asylum country, as Kathleen said, um, the, you know, the conditions uh, might make them more, uh, more vulnerable even than the, the other people um, who they're living with. Um, the other complication is that uh, when there's a delay in someone actually departing within the, the settlement program, um, the, the types of checks that you have to go through to actually use that space, um, so things like visas or health checks can expire if that delay switch is on too long. So you could see a situation where people have been waiting already for many months or even um, a year to 
CEP. Uh, and they actually then have to face a delay of another several months once the settlement starts because those things have expired. Um, and then finally, the other complication is that uh, when people are responding to this whole family, um, you know, we're not necessarily able to travel together if you have family members who are in different countries. Um, it's possible that you know, if, we, if UNHCR is able to restart resettlement from one location um, but not another, or they're able to um, uh, you know, have already resettled someone to, uh, to the destination country and not another family member, but families could be um, separated for, again, for, for months or potentially longer, depending on how long this lasts. Thank you very much, Susan, and thank you all of you for emphasizing how um, this crisis is not creating problems from scratch, but really overlaying on top of existing fractures to systems. Um, we are going to move on to the next topic, but actually uh, we had a question that was specifically on this area that we're discussing. So I just wanted to return to Hannah uh, for a question about reception. Um, we have a question about whether or not there are countries that are continuing as usual. Uh, and you mentioned Sweden, and I was wondering if you could just very briefly tell us a little bit more about whether the Sweden example is continuing as usual. Yes, thank you, uh, Megan. Yes, I mean, that's really the exception, Sweden. So Sweden is continuing also with uh, asylum interviews taking place. Um, there's a number of countries that are um, investigating whether um, they can also do alternative measures, such as Switzerland has uh, vacated their um, uh, offices for a week and have put like plexiglass and different things to protect staff and interviewees. So there are a number, you can see that the situation is um, quickly um, changing. So for example, I said Belgium and the Netherlands had originally said they wouldn't register. They've now changed that and are doing some light registration, which is checking people's identity, security, those kind of elements, but no um, processing going on of the actual asylum claim. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, so we're going to move next into this question of how COVID is beginning to affect institutions. Um, and perhaps we could just return to Hannah to expand on the point you were just making and discuss a little bit more about how other member states are responding. Is this a time of innovation or is it really exposing existing problems in the system? Yes, thank you. Um, so, as I said before, um, the key response has been to really push the pause button, but pushing the pause button buys you time, it doesn't buy you a solution. And I think that's what uh, many are coming to terms with right now. So, if we look at the asylum process, there you can really see um, that there's been an initial question about, like I was just saying before, can we do something to continue the asylum processing for the interviews to take place. And in that respect, you see the adaptation of offices. But very quickly, there's another question that comes to mind and that policymakers in all domains of life are now confronted with the question, if this health crisis is going to persist for another 18 months, or if, if even future health crisis will happen, how can we maybe look at um, the asylum process in a different way? And there it was interesting that the State Secretary of the Netherlands, for example, in the reply to different questions about what's going to happen with the asylum procedure said, the asylum procedure is a very contact intensive procedure. And it just shows the kind of different kind of glasses with which we're now looking at this. So um, the, the European Asylum Support Office, for example, has now um, decided to give a kind of webinar for those interested to authorities to really check are there particular parts 
um, of the asylum procedure that we could do remotely? How does video conference calls work? And for which kind of cases can we do this? So this is really important because there may be cases where you can actually drop the interview entirely if somebody is really likely to get protection anyway. Um, but there are also concerns that for particular vulnerable groups, it might be very difficult to do this. So it's really thinking through um, the system. And it's very important that the asylum procedure continues because otherwise we risk having a backlog, um, the limbo situation prolonging for asylum seekers themselves. But also we know from the crisis that the longer you wait with an ultimate decision, it also becomes more difficult to eventually return those who are not entitled to protection. When it comes to the reception system, there we see a, a very different situation in the sense that, um, as you were saying before, Megan, this, this crisis hits um, European countries also in a, in, a, in a situation where already a number of member states were struggling on the reception front. Let's go back to the Netherlands and, and the Belgium as the example. There, uh, those, both of those countries were really struggling to get um, housing for, um, for asylum seekers because Governments have promised their citizens that the crisis of 2015-2016 wouldn't happen again, and that has meant that as soon as numbers started dropping, um, housing capacity was scrapped, um, reception staff was um, dismissed, and those kind of elements. So it really exacerbates an already existing problem, and you have situations like in the Netherlands where the government already had to uh, pay high fines because it can't provide the right that have been uh, laid down in law. And so this is really a difficulty there and they're really scrambling to negotiate with mayors as to how they can actually take people from reception systems, uh, sorry, centers and take them out so there's less people and there's some kind of social distance that can happen. Thanks. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, Sarah, is, are there any similar implications for the US-Mexico border in terms of moving beyond this emergency phase and they're thinking about reintroducing certain elements. I mean, how long can the administration maintain these current border closures? Uh, so, I mean, just to start, it was so interesting and enlightening to hear from Hannah, people using this crisis as a way to rethink our asylum system and, and how, do you, how do you do asylum in a time of public health crisis in the United States? Rather, we've seen them use the public health crisis as a way to shut down the asylum system. So what the administration has done is used decades old statutes that many of us were not aware existed to shut the border down um, at, with the public health crisis as an excuse. Um, and this is something really they've been trying to do and working towards slowly for a couple of years. And I don't expect them to walk it back willingly, even once this crisis is over with, because, like I said, this is something that they've been trying to accomplish. So like with many of President Trump's immigration policies, I expect it to fall on federal courts to decide when, how, and if this ends. But even once they do strike it down, the protections that we'll be reverting to are really minimal. The, the regime that the administration had put in place made it very difficult to apply for asylum at the southern border. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're in a bad situation right now, and, and this is only making it worse for asylum seekers at the southern border. We also face a big institutional challenge in the interior of the United States. Like Susan said, refugee resettlement has shut down. But even before this crisis, the Trump administration had 
pared back refugee resettlement so significantly in the United States that our network of refugee resettlement agencies were really suffering. Uh, before this crisis struck, 51 offices had closed and 41 had, had stopped offering services. I suspect this crisis is only going to make those numbers significantly worse, which will then add um, arsenal to the administration to argue that we should continue to keep these resettlement numbers down. Thank you so much, Sarah. Kathleen, could you talk a little bit about the response in the international community? Is there concern about this being an environment where there's going to be even more stringent resource constraints? Um, how well are international organizations working together to address this challenge? Well, there is obviously enormous concern, uh, both about uh, resource constraints and about humanitarian access. Um, again, with uh, travel bans in effect for many of the affected countries um, and both internally and externally. Um, <clears throat> the, the humanitarian agencies have been uh, working together pretty, um, pretty effectively in most refugee situations that I've looked at. I mean, there are always some bureaucratic tensions and rivalries, but uh, I don't think they are um, nearly at the level that they were several years ago. Um, and now that the, the UN has put in place a, a migration network, there's even more of a formal structure for, um, for different uh, humanitarian agencies to work together. And of course, the private humanitarian agencies um, coordinate among themselves to an extent uh, and with the international agencies. But um, they're the the needs are so great and the challenges are so formidable uh, that there's always a, a some tendency for for different agencies to be running off in in different directions uh, trying to to meet the crisis of the moment um, and uh, that that is is something I think we can expect to see continue. But the the biggest problem is humanitarian access at a time of of really stringent uh, travel restrictions and looking at how that will affect technical assistance, uh, direct humanitarian assistance, and the supply chain. Thank you very much, Kathleen. And um, Susan, you talked a little bit about how resettlement is being affected, but when we look ahead to the next phase, are we likely to see backlogs? What's the impact on the resettlement infrastructure here? I think um, we can look at a couple of different levels of impact. Um, on the international level, as I said, there's of course the, the issue of the delay of the immediate cases who are already um, meant to be resettled within the next month or so. Um, but there's also a, a medium or a longer term challenge, which is that um, if UNHCR and resettling states aren't actually able to go and um, conduct resettlement interviews, um, it may actually contribute to a longer backlog um, and a delay in getting cases actually into that pipeline um, to be resettled in the future. So you could see a situation where um, even when resettlement um, reopens in you know, uh, potentially in the next couple of months, if we're in a situation where the you know, health conditions allow that to happen, 
um, where there isn't actually a, a pipeline of cases coming through UNHCR who can actually then be brought into resettlement countries. And that's a challenge because many resettlement countries actually rely quite heavily on UNHCR to identify and refer people for resettlement. Um, at the national level, I think um, the point that Sarah made is, uh, is a very important one. Um, if we are in a situation where there aren't a lot of resettlement arrivals coming to, um, to countries, uh, what does that mean for the national level infrastructure and the ability of countries to actually maintain that infrastructure? Um, so, for example, if you don't have if you don't have people actually arriving, is there a risk that staff would be redirected elsewhere um, if if those cases don't exist for a few months? Um, and then, of course, uh, you have agencies who are actually operating on the ground, like in the U.S who may depend on resettlement arrivals um, as a source of funding. And if you don't have cases, again, arriving and they aren't receiving that funding, um, what does that mean for their ability to actually maintain their operations? And then um, longer term, uh, once uh, arrivals actually begin to scale up again, will countries have the infrastructure there to support their programs and continue to receive people? Um, that's on the, the resettlement side. Um, one of the interesting things that we've actually seen within the last couple of years is the emergence of refugee uh, sponsorships. So these are programs where community groups um, come together and actually um, provide um, welcome and uh, many of the, the services and orientation um, that are needed once a refugee actually arrives in a resettlement country. And several of these programs have started within the last couple of years, particularly in Europe, as a way to um, bring community members more into the resettlement process. Um, this uh, crisis is coming at a bit of a, an awkward time for the emergency sponsorship programs because there's been a lot of energy um, and new programs starting. And uh, again, many of these sponsorship programs rely on UNHCR for referrals and for people to actually um, be, uh, you know, be coming and, and benefiting from these programs um, and with UNHCR uh, halting arrivals um, and also with uh, you know, potential delay in referrals, um, there are programs who have sponsorship groups who are you know, waiting for refugees to be resettled um, who aren't receiving, um, aren't receiving the, the refugees who they had um, you know, hoped to welcome. Um, so what does that mean um, for the sponsorship programs? Uh, there's a lot of questions that these programs are trying to work through for the first time. Um, you know, on the one hand, how do you actually maintain the interest of a sponsorship group uh, who may be waiting for you know, months or longer? Um, I thought that they would be receiving an NWD um, here in, in March or in April. Um, how do you deal with groups who've already taken on expenses? So, for example, if they rented housing um, for a, a refugee family who they were expecting to receive, and they now have to either you know, decide to, um, to get rid of that housing they've rented or continue to pay rent for another several months, not knowing when um, someone will actually come. Um, and then there's a question of how do you actually support the sponsor groups and refugees who've already been resettled? Um, social distancing has a lot of implications for how sponsorship groups are able to interact with the, the refugee families who they have welcomed, um, particularly as in many countries, sponsors tend to be older um, retirees, so in the group who may be particularly at risk for COVID, um, if you're not actually able to physically interact with, uh, with resettled refugees, how do you provide that welcome? How do you answer questions? Um, the, the social interactions 
component is so important to refugee sponsorship. Uh, how do you do that when you can't physically see each other? And there's a lot of um, interesting and creative examples that have emerged in the last few months uh, from countries um, in the UK and in Canada, where uh, some of the sponsorship agencies that are responsible for supporting sponsors have um, given people training on things like using WhatsApp and Zoom to interact with, um, with refugees. Uh, they've put out a lot of materials so that sponsors are able to give um, accurate information to the families who they've sponsored. Um, so there are there are ways to address those concerns, and there's been a lot of creativity in the sponsorship sector in a number of countries in figuring out how to do that. Um, and in terms of the your question around infrastructure, I think it points to the need within these programs to have those types of groups available that can actually provide that kind of support and training to um, to sponsors and to refugees when something like this an unprecedented crisis might hit. Um, and the last point I'll just say is these questions about um, social distancing and how it affects um, the your interactions with resettled refugees and the potential for isolation aren't limited to sponsorship programs. These are also um, you know, things that are, are concerns for recently arrived refugees within government programs as well. Um, I think the difference is that perhaps um, you, know, you might not have quite the, the same support that's happening for the sponsorship groups to try to overcome some of these limitations. So we also need to be thinking through how to um, how to ensure that new arrivals more generally aren't ending up uh, in isolated situations. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, turning back to Hannah, how do you see this going forward? Are some of these developments that are you know being carved in a period of crisis going to stick? And what's the chat like in Europe about the future of the Refugee Convention and the effect on norms ultimately? Yes, thanks, Megan. Um, as we, we said, I mean, for the moment, it's, it's an operational challenge. And I want to go, to go back to Sarah's comments. I mean, there is creativity that we see. A lot of people are trying to investigate how can we do this different, and that's a very positive development. But the danger is, of course, that this operational challenge may become a political obstacle in a very short time span. So that ultimately this becomes a political challenge to the whole idea of, as Susan was explaining, the idea of resettlement, the idea of, of asylum systems. And so we already saw in 2015 and 2016 that a number of governments or political parties in Europe were starting to question the validity and um, yeah, of, of the Geneva Convention in our current day and age. And so this is not something that's about to go away. These were either public discussions or behind closed doors. And again, here it's really important that um, those that have the capacity, also technological people, but also asylum officers, really think through what can we do to make an asylum procedure feasible within uh, a situation where there's a need for social distancing, those kind of elements. But on the second hand, there's also the whole reception system. And there, we have already drawn this conclusion in 2015 is that um, a reception system cannot survive without a certain level of buffer capacity. Buffer capacity makes sure that when there's a sudden rise in asylum arrivals, that people don't sleep rough, but also um, that you actually make sure that your operational arm of your asylum system can actually take a deep breath look at what the situation is, what the problems are, and come up with a decent solution and then implement it. It seems that we've seen, like in the health sector, um, so much creativity in the last weeks in terms of um, quickly developing uh, breathing machines, um, building new wards, all these kind of things. But housing for asylum seekers and these kind of vulnerable groups 
children's um, families. It's not something that happens overnight, so it's really important that kind of forecasting and investment continues to happen in, in the next period if this is going to uh, only be an operational challenge and not a political obstacle. Thanks, Hannah. And same question to Sarah, if I may. I mean, we've seen um, the erosion of the principle of non-reformal um, uh, in the US case. Is it possible to walk back from that? And what do you see the future looking like? So it, I think we already had a challenge because the administration had shut down so significantly protections at the southern border. Any future administration that wanted to restore those protections was already faced with a difficult situation because if they did so speedily, we would see another surge of arrivals at the southern border. So they, they were already facing this challenge of how do you actually restore those protections in a thoughtful way that provides for speedy but fair adjudication to ensure you're not creating a perverse incentive for people to apply for asylum at the southern border just so they could get in and stay while their applications adjudicated for years. That problem is, is just exponentially increased by now the full-on ending of protections at the southern border. So that's the immediate logistical problem for any future administration that wants to restore those protections. But I am very concerned about the long-term implications and, and the, the precedent that this administration has set. The southern border closure has no acknowledgement of the concept of non-reformal. Um, there is a limited protection for migrants who arrive and spontaneously say that they have a fear of torture if they're returned to Mexico or their home country. It sounds as if there's, it's going to be very difficult for any of those claims to actually get through, but that Convention Against Torture claim is the only thing that's being acknowledged. There's no acknowledgement of fear of persecution or anything like that, and I'm not sure we have an example of any prior administration, at least since these, these concepts were integrated into U.S. law in 1980, um, that any administration that has just completely shut these down. So now that precedent is in the books and, and I'm definitely concerned about um, those norms going forward in the United States. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Susan, perhaps same question to you, but from the perspective of the, of the system as a whole, um, how do you maintain the principle of asylum in a world where countries are trying to reduce mobility of all kinds? And what are the prospects of the resettlement system more broadly? I um, yeah, I have to say uh, it's this has you know, been not exactly a happy conversation, and um, I myself am not um, particularly optimistic when it comes to answering the question that um, you specifically asked. Um, I think as uh, Hannah and as Sarah already said, um, the concept of asylum in many places was already on quite shaky ground, and what we've seen um, in response to the current crisis is uh, sort of widespread you know, travel and border closures in many countries that have limited official travel, but um, in actually the majority of cases, these border closures have actually also not included um, exceptions for uh, people who wish to, to file asylum claims. Um, so in fact, even in countries, um, for example, Switzerland, where they're actually still processing um, applications to people who are in the country, the border closures uh, explicitly say that they are not uh, making exceptions for people to cross a border with the intention of filing a claim. We've actually seen um, quite widespread cutting off of access to territory for uh, people who are, are seeking to file asylum. 
And I think that um, that really demonstrates in some ways the extent to which the, the current system um, was and the ideas behind the convention were already on quite shaky ground. Um, very few governments have really been willing to sort of come out and say that this is a principle that we're really um, you know, willing to stand up for and protect even in the face of, um, of you know, the, the fear that goes along with a, a global pandemic. Um, and I should say, these border closures aren't limited to the, the obvious cases like the, the US, as Sarah said, um, where the administration has been trying to find ways to actually shut off the possibility of um, new arrivals for quite a long time. But they're broader than that. And Uganda, for example, indicated that they aren't accepting any new uh, refugees um, for the, the current period. Colombia and many other countries in South America who were providing um, refuge to Venezuelans uh, have closed their borders. Um, so this is really a, a broader trend. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very um, uh, critical development because um, access to asylum really depends on having access to territory or actually the, at least the ability to put yourself under the jurisdiction of the, the country where you're hoping to file an asylum claim. And without the ability to actually um, cross the, the border or, or come to a point of entry and indicate your desire to file uh, an asylum claim, the protections that are, are granted to refugees um, under the convention don't have a lot of meaning if you aren't actually able to, to take that action. Um, so the border closures really have uh, you know, quite significant impact for access to protection um, for refugees. Um, then the, the other question, and I think again, is of course, what's the what's the exit strategy? Are we likely to return to normal, or is this you know a sort of a broader um, shift in terms of how we understand asylum? And I think we are still you know we're still working through the implications of this crisis on a lot of different levels. Um, every week or every couple of days, we seem to bring a new development. Um, I think, uh, of course, as Sarah mentioned for some countries, this has really been an excuse to make changes to their system that they are already trying to do and, and find new ways to, to block um, new arrivals. But I think even for countries that are acting in relative good faith and um, you know, for whom their, their asylum system and the ability to access their territory for asylum seekers um, was sort of a, a, a victim of a broader effort to, um, to prevent travel and maintain social distancing. Um, I, I think there's a, a legitimate concern that it'll be difficult to walk some of these changes back. Um, Hannah mentioned, of course, the experiences of 2015 and 2016, where uh, European countries shut their internal borders as a response to um, relatively large numbers of, uh, of new refugees and asylum seekers crossing into Europe. Um, what we've actually seen is that while those closures were implemented in 2016, um, many of the countries who closed their, their borders back in 2016 are still maintaining border closures um, or, or border controls, I should say, uh, to some extent today. Um, and it's been quite difficult even four years later to really fully and completely walk some of those changes back. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons for that, but I think um, some of those, uh, those actual um, difficulties that governments have had will still be relevant to the border closures we see today and the, the inclusion of the asylum system. Um, governments have to figure out once they've uh, made changes like this and, and indicated to their public that there is a threat um, or some kind of a, a risk that needs to be mitigated through a border closure, um, it's very difficult for them to figure out how then to indicate to the public that that risk is no longer present. We um, expect 
extent that you need to have a border closure, how do you signal that the situation is under control? Um, and aside from the, you know, the sort of risk signaling issue, um, how I think there are a lot of questions about how generous publics are going to be uh, when they are facing a, a recession and a situation where there's a lot of strain on social and health services. Um, is this going to play into the hands of some of the, the populist forces that have uh, already raised concerns about um, you know, the perception that asylum seekers and refugees are placing strain on um, crucial social services uh, when those are, are truly in short supply? Um, I think what we're more likely to see, and, and like you said, it's, uh, you know, well, the situation changes week by week, um, but it's a, a slow walk back eventually from some of these border measures, but I don't know how likely it is that we'll be able to return to the status quo in terms of access to territory um, in, the, in the very near future. Um, and I should say in terms of, of resettlement, I think many of the same concerns apply um, with a situation of potential recession, overburdened health care and social services, um, what does that mean for the generosity of public? Um, on the, the flip side, um, I think there is uh, you know, some potential lessons to be learned from things like the settlement programs where refugees undergo quite extensive um, medical screening, more extensive than most other groups before they actually travel. Uh, and we could potentially see you know, governments um, who are still able uh, you know, politically to be generous um, prioritizing some of those types of programs where you're able to implement um, pre-screening health checks um, before people actually depart as a way to mitigate some of those um, some of those concerns. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me, I had a mute problem. Um, uh, thank you very much, Susan. And I, I want to turn now to Kathleen. Do you feel as as pessimistic as the others? I mean, you've been following these issues for for decades. Uh, sorry, without <laughs> revealing your age. <laughs> um, is, is this a watershed moment, or is it part of a kind of ebb and flow that we've we've seen? You know, it's it's very difficult to answer a question like that when you're staring a crisis in the face, and it's so it's it's difficult to see how this will come up. I think there are some. Um, some sort of rays of hope in this. I look at Germany, for example, um, and uh, Angela Merkel's uh, ratings have gone through the roof in in recent weeks, as the those of um, Alternative for Germany, the the right wing party, have gone down dramatically. So I think you know there there is some sense of rallying around. Um, some positive leadership. Um, unfortunately, positive leadership is is um, is not at the forefront uh, in this crisis. But I think we should give credit to those countries that have kept their borders open, like Bangladesh um, and uh, and and some uh, and some others um, have kept their borders open to refugees and. Uh, make sure that the international community has resources to uh, assist them in, in assistance, in providing uh, material assistance to refugees. Um, the US government, for example, gave a, an untied um, extra contribution to UNHCR um, a, a few weeks ago to the UN Refugee um, Agency. And, and it has received untied uh, extra contributions from others to deal to deal with this crisis. So you know there is some responsiveness. 
Uh, I think we need to be much more concerned about internally displaced people, um, not uh, because they're obviously not affected by border closures because they haven't been able to cross the border uh, in the first place, uh, but access to internally displaced populations, uh, especially where they're persecuted minorities in Myanmar, for instance, has become much more difficult for humanitarian agencies. And I think the, the coronavirus serves, uh, as others have said, more as an excuse than, than a reason for that, but it, it does provide a reason for it. I guess the final thing I would, I would say, which emphasizes the importance of the refugee regime as we've known it since uh, World War II, is um, that their refugees are such a, they, they are such vulnerable populations, not just for the coronavirus, but uh, for others. I mean, both Susan and I listened into a, a briefing from the head of the disaster relief agency in Turkey recently, who said, you know, that on the border with Idlib, northern Syria, they aren't even worrying about the coronavirus because people are much more likely to get killed by a bomb than by a virus at this stage. So those very fundamental protections need to persist, even as we're trying to layer on this new set of protections. And um, as I say, I, th I think it will take some time to see whether uh, the international community rises to that challenge. Thank you, Kathleen. Um, I have lots of questions that have come in um, that I, I'd like to start with, but just a reminder that if you um, aren't using um, the WebEx um, event software, you can also email us at events at migrationpolicy.org. We'll try and get to as many questions as possible. I've been given permission to overrun a little bit, so I hope that's okay with everyone. Um, Sarah, perhaps I could turn to you first. Um, we have a question about the situation with Venezuelan refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and the escalating tensions between the US and Venezuela. How is COVID likely to impact the situation? So we didn't, we haven't actually had a huge amount of, of Venezuelan asylum seekers, at least arriving at the southern border of the United States. Um, most of them initially when the crisis started, um, used tourist visas to come into the United States and apply for asylum internally. For, those, for that population, their applications, um, if they haven't already had asylum interviews, they will be suspended because the U.S. Immigration Agency that adjudicates those has ended all in-person services. Um, and then throughout Latin America, you know, where the, where the majority of, of this migration crisis is taking place, it's, it's a huge problem. I mean, there's been a lot of creative solutions as far as welcoming Venezuelan asylum seekers in different Latin American countries, um, but I don't think that they were prepared for a public health crisis in addition to the crisis that they're already dealing with. So we have a lot of vulnerable people um, just kind of waiting for this hit. Thank you. And this is a question for Hannah. Um, a number of EU member states um, said that they wanted to take in some refugee children who were stuck in Greece. Has there been any progress on this? Yeah, so I think that's an important uh, question. Um, I spoke with uh, representatives from the Ministry of Interior about 10 days ago, and they were saying these kind of discussions were very much still ongoing. But of course, now it's really difficult to think through uh, how this is going to work. 
Uh, as I was saying, I mean, a lot of mayors uh, in different countries are concerned about populations being, people being extracted from certain kind of groups and then actually being moved to another group with all of the risk of, of infection. So um, the latest I have heard um, was that it was still ongoing, but not concluded yet. Thank you. And Susan, a, a question about resettlement programs uh, and the fact that they already require really extensive health checks. So in some regard, resettled refugees are one group of international travelers that is best checked for health or fitness to travel. Um, the question is whether or not it should be one of the first places that should be opened up when travel restrictions lift. It's a, a good question. I mean, as the, um, the, the person who asked the question pointed out, refugees who come through the resettlement program already go through quite extensive health checks. Um, when we're talking about something like COVID-19, of course, uh, there's still a lot of questions specifically about how it's transmitted and um, how long it takes to show up and, of course, testing difficulties and all of these sorts of things. So, um, and lack of, of availability of tests. So I imagine that uh, before you could actually restart um, arrivals through the resettlement stream um, in the same way as you could restart arrivals through any other um, any other stream, uh, you would have to just deal with the, the lack of testing capacity and, and figure out how to actually apply that to um, uh, apply the availability of tests and those sorts of protocols to um, settlement arrivals as well. Um, I think you know the, the infrastructure, of course, is there um, to actually begin to, uh, to to apply some of those things in context to the settlement, given the, the fact that there is the infrastructure to conduct um, health checks. But you'd have to deal with some of those logistical challenges. Um, and I think also uh, you need to deal with some of the other challenges that I had discussed uh, earlier with regards to. Um, the public willingness and the extent to which governments are sort of able to, to position themselves around um, around resettlement arrivals and bringing um, actually bringing people in uh, in the context of a, a broader social service and health crisis, I think will also have um, have implications. But yes, that potentially there there could be um, the, the infrastructure there to begin to restart resettlement arrivals possibly um, before others. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Kathleen, you expressed a, a little bit of optimism earlier. Um, we have a question about whether if we see a second and third wave of COVID, what the situation will be then? Um, I certainly think there would be much quicker and sharper reactions than we've seen in the first round because there will be, um, th because there is more knowledge about uh, non-symptomatic transmission, for example, um, and uh, the effectiveness, the apparent effectiveness that we've seen of social distancing in places like in countries like Italy and China. Um, so I, I think there would be a, a quicker and sharper reaction if there's a secondary wave uh, of restrictions on mobility, that is. Uh, but there is uh, no reason why this should particularly affect resettlement programs, I think, for the sad reason that they are so small currently. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are less than 100,000 resettlement places worldwide currently. And, you know, if the U.S. is even contemplating resettling uh, only 18,000 people in a current fiscal year, they could easily make available testing 
um, if there were any desire to do that. But I agree with what my colleagues have said that that this is more likely to be COVID-19 is more likely to be used as an excuse rather than a, a real reason to halt uh, resettlement movements. Now, asylum movements are a different are a different story, and I think um, there it's going to be a question of uh, capacity uh, for for quarantine in humane circumstances, and that is um, that's a really big question, uh, not just for refugees but for all international travelers. The trouble is, uh, of course, that for refugees their lives may depend on mobility, not just their livelihoods, not just their business interests, um, not just their desires to see family and so on, but their their ability to survive. So if anyone, if, if mobility should be prioritized for anyone, it, it would be those who are, are actually running for their lives. Thank you. Um, just a reminder that we're going to go just a few minutes over, but for those of you who have to go, you can check out our website um, and we will uh, try to get back to people who we haven't responded to um, right now. Um, a question on digital technologies, and I wanted to pose this both to Sarah and Hannah because I think it's an interesting contrast. How are digital technologies being used in asylum processing systems? Uh, starting with Sarah, please. Um, but not much. I think so. The U.S. Immigration Agency is remarkable for how little has been digitized. I mean, for example, our our U.S. Immigration Agency in particular has 80 immigration benefits applications, and only 10 of those are available online. Um, so this crisis has really significantly shut them down. This administration, more so than others, has really taken advantage of video teleconferencing in our immigration courts. So. Um, that is available, but the, the crisis has so significantly shut everything down that the only immigration courts that are moving right now are, are for detained individuals. So there's been a little bit of use of technology, but because we were so behind to start, um, this, has, this crisis has really you know, shut everything down despite the, the little technology that we were taking advantage of to begin with. Yes, Sarah, I think the situation is very similar over here in the sense that um, my sense has always been that the immigration system is lags so much behind when it comes to incorporating technologically, technological advances in our procedures. So we see now um, a number of countries that have decided to, again, start registration and they do it now through uh, online application. So, or you can send actually an email where you, you have to fill out uh, particular forms and those kind of things. And then as a result of that, uh, a first registration appointment is made, but also video conferencing, as I was saying before, um, there's been concerns in the Netherlands to, to continue this. And they said, well, this is not possible because we would have to support people with this kind of technological uh, devices and that's not feasible. Whereas we see um, in the court system in Belgium that for the first time, in a very archaic system that uh, court cases are being um, started with, for example, prisoners um, calling in through Skype or other kinds of means to be present as part of these proceedings. So there's a lot of possibilities, and I think it will be really crucial if this is not to become the new normal um, that we suspend asylum procedures at the least challenge, is that we actually build up these technological advances and procedures to continue this in the, in the, in the future. 
Kathleen. Yeah, um, I just wanted to point out that there has been a, an enormous amount of uh, innovate of technological innovation and in actually providing services to refugees, both in camps and in urban settings, where many programs have moved to cash distribution rather than, or in addition to, but dominant cash distribution dominating direct distribution of, of commodities, for example, and giving people cash cards where they can go to an ATM and get cash. Uh, to provide for their basic needs rather than having to line up at a distribution center and um, expose themselves and staff in that way. Um, and even in distribution centers, um, their, the registration of people through digital cards has been used to space out uh, distribution so that not everyone shows up on a given day uh, to get commodities. Um, and that um, that sort of thing, and of course, uh, where it's possible, the distribution of information uh, by by mobile phone uh, over the internet has has really uh, made it possible for refugee populations to understand what's possible, what they need to do to protect themselves. And I think the the humanitarian agencies of both um, the international uh, intergovernmental ones and the private ones have uh, showed a, a lot of um, creative thinking about how to use uh, technology to keep people safer and provide better services. Thank you so much, Kathleen, very important point. Um, I, I promised we'd just go five minutes after, so I, I, I lied and would like to give the final question to Susan. That's okay. We have a question here about the situation um, between Turkey and Greece on the Turkey-Greece border. Um, it's disappeared from the media. Um, COVID has kind of consumed this issue, but what's going on there right now? So uh, it's a good question. I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of things that have really disappeared from the the media right now, with COVID dominating the headlines. Um, I mean, in the the circumstances in Greece, you actually saw a little bit of mixture between the two issues. So the Greek government um, was dealing with uh, sort of the response to um, Turkey announcing that it would no longer be halting uh, arrivals of people both um, by boats in the Aegean and also at the Greek-Turkish land border. That happened um, just a, a week or two before uh, COVID really began to um, become an issue in Europe. And you actually saw the, the Greek government sort of seem to blend those two issues, um, announcing that they would stop accepting new asylum applications um, first, as part of the response to uh, to the situation with Turkey, but then that sort of became mixed in with the conversation around COVID, and um, they were also doing that as a reason for for suspending um, the acceptance of new asylum applications as part of the social distancing COVID measures. Um, right now, it uh, latest seems to be that Turkey has actually started to um, enforce some of the pullbacks that it was doing um, before. Uh, before it had uh, begun to you know, allow people to, to cross the border again. Um, but the, the situation, as um, Hannah alluded to earlier, on the, uh, the islands in the Aegean is uh, still quite dire. Um, people are still arriving, even though uh, Turkey had begun to implement some of those pullbacks again. Um, and the, the circumstances that they're arriving into, um, the camps in, in Moria and some of the other camps are 
um, you know, just as crowded as they were before, um, and they're just as vulnerable as they were before to um, outbreaks of disease, including um, the, the new coronavirus. And the, the government has been um, quite harsh in terms of, of taking measures to restrict the, the movement of people um, from those camps. Um, and there are a lot of concerns about um, sanitary conditions and what that means for um, the potential spread of, of the virus. Um, the government has also, um, the new government has also sort of maintained this, um, this line about not accepting your final applications and you know, returning um, people who have arrived um, since they made that announcement. Um, so the, uh, even though Turkey has begun to sort of you know, implement the, the agreements that it had made under the original EU Turkey statement to pull people back, um, there's still a lot of uh, humanitarian concerns around those who are arriving and access to protection um, in terms of those who do actually make it safely. Thank you very much, Susan, and apologies uh, to those of you whose questions we weren't able to answer, and also apologies for, for overrunning. I feel like we could talk about these issues for another three hours, and in, in many ways, this is really the start of the conversation, um, and we really encourage you to get in touch if you want to discuss these issues more. Um, I'd also like to point you to um, our new uh, COVID page, migrationpolicy.org forward slash coronavirus. Um, the audio from today's webinar will be available at migrationpolicy.org forward slash events later today. Um, if you're a reporter on the line and you want to um, uh, find out more, you can contact Michelle at 202-266-1910 or mmittelstadt at migrationpolicy.org. Um, thank you so much for, every, for your time, speakers. Thank you so much for those of you who, who joined us um, from your homes um, and all the best for the rest of the day.